Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. Colleges are starting to head back across America during the COVID-19 pandemic. You've probably seen headlines where certain colleges are seeing major outbreaks as college students are sort of acting like college students. But there are other colleges that have not brought their students back to the campuses and instead they're teaching them online and at home, more remote basically. A writer named Jack Howe in Barron's wrote sort of just an interesting piece about colleges and I wanna share it with you. He wrote, honestly, I don't envy students entering college. Coursework without campus life sounds efficient, but unexciting. It also seems like something that should be cheap. Basic calculus hasn't changed since the 17th century, and course materials and lectures are widely available online for free. But another 17th century creation, Harvard University, says it won't discount its $49,653 yearly tuition. Freshmen have the option of living on campus, but must take classes online and be tested for COVID-19 every three days. Room, board, and the rest bring the bill to $72,000 a year. For the first time, the inertia might be getting shaken because parents are seeing their kids at home and recognizing how little substance there is behind so many university classes. Students are looking at what they're missing about universities and classes are not even making the top 10 list. So here we go. Co colleges have not given a discount for being remote. What do you think about that, Don? Do you think colleges are maybe going to be in trouble here? good for the kids that got into their stretch school because so many people didn't apply or didn't take their application or took a year off so you could really get into stretch school but what do you get you get to be at home or in an empty dorm room with just you trying not to see other people trying to do your classes online with professors that may or may not be good at it yeah it's it's a bad situation and i think it makes clear what most of us probably already knew in the back of our heads which is there's not a tremendous amount to most college classes. I imagine some people are learning a tremendous amount. I was mostly learning how to take a left when I was in college, and I didn't really learn that much. I wish I'd taken classes more seriously. I have a friend that went when he was 40, and he learned a ton because he was 40. It's wasted on the young, like many things. I would agree with what you're saying about, you're right, some people probably did get into schools that maybe in a normal year they didn't get into. And yet, I guess you could ask them, how are you feeling now? But maybe, hey, if it's a one-year thing, then they're going to still be really excited about what they get in a couple of years. But I agree with you. I was thinking back to my college experience. I went to Kalamazoo College. I am a very proud alum. I loved my experience there. But I was thinking yesterday, what is it that I liked about college? I was thinking about the fact that for four years, I was constantly challenged with thinking bigger. I learned a ton about women's rights, minority rights, gay and lesbian rights. I studied abroad. I learned about different cultures and trying to be respectful of them. And all of those things really did not happen inside a classroom. They all happened in dorm room conversations or cafeteria conversations or just from experiences of meeting people that I never would have met from my hometown. In many ways, I feel like, yeah, the money was kind of worth it because I felt like I left as a much more broadly horizoned individual. But I have to assume there's also a price for that. When I think back to the classes, you know, I took econ. I was an econ major. And I would assume that the econ classes at K College are about the same as any other standard econ class. And as this guy says in the article, a lot of those are free online. And yet, Kalamazoo College, I looked it up today. If you wanted to go there with room and board, you're looking at about $63,000 for one year right now. And I have to imagine that a student who is 
going remote is not enjoying paying those sort of prices for the tuition because the tuition alone is fifty thousand dollars you learn a lot but not in the classroom i remember my parents told me that because i lived in ann arbor and went to the university of michigan and still loved lived in the dorms and i said should i live in the dorms my parents said oh you learn way more out of class than you do in class so they knew they were in on the secret they were college educated i lived in white privilege we were aware of these things What's left is the classes, which Brian Kaplan would tell us that it doesn't matter that much at all. What matters is the degree, the lambskin effect, the saying that you went to this prestigious school or unprestigious school, and the classes itself have little value. Brian Kaplan, you're referring to, wrote that book, The Case Against Education. I think we've mentioned it on a previous episode. And his big point is that colleges are just about signaling. People want to see that you have a degree. Still, to this day, economically speaking, people that have a four-year degree earn more over their lifetime than people that do not have one. His point is also that nobody really remembers anything they learn. Transferability skills from sitting in a class like Psychology 101 or even engineering master's level, most people kind of forget those things. And then they get to the job and they kind of have to like relearn either what they had learned or actually get the skills that they needed to actually perform the job. And so his whole point was just college is kind of a waste of time and money. When you probably talk to most college kids, it's the social life, right? It's going to parties and there are interesting organizations, interesting societies. Colleges provide tons of different opportunities for motivated students that want to kind of find their niche in life. But a lot of those are outside the classroom. And I've just always wondered, we never see colleges dropping their prices. We never see tuition getting lowered. It always continues to increase. In this article, they mentioned that basically tuition has been rising at double the rate of inflation over the last decade. Even now, when a college is saying we're going remote, they are giving nobody a discount. All those things you mentioned, the interpersonal conversations, the living in the dorm, the traveling, these are all things that COVID prohibits. These are the very things that are the most dangerous are the very things that we get the most out of college. Now, the, the prices keep going up and up because the colleges just keep spending and they can charge what they want. Well, some of them can charge what they want. Michigan gets more expensive every year and has many, many applicants. Western Michigan, Central Michigan, they're falling in enrollment. They can't charge that much because people are increasingly focused on these big schools that have the greatest reputation. But you know how that reputation's formed, right? Please tell me. It's the tail that wags the dog. So the U.S. News and World Report wants to rank ranks the universities, and the universities want to be ranked highly, so they seek out the very things that U.S. News and World Report is looking for. So the most tenured professors per student, the highest GPA coming in, the highest standardized test score coming in, the number of to students that leave with graduate degrees or percentage that get degrees. And it's all these things that are usually correlated with the student's incoming income. And the colleges just play this game. And then they want to recruit the best students so they can look the best in the U.S. News and World Report. So how do they do that? They make super nice cafeterias, super nice dorms to get the kids to come in. I often talk to my high school students. I say, why do you want to go to whatever school? And they say, well, the dorms or the dorm food is really good. Who the hell cares about the dorm food? Why is that your decision making? By the way, we shouldn't let 18-year-olds make these decisions. But anyway, I remember thinking the dorm food was the last of my concerns. All I was worried about was the soft serve machine. 
<laughs> I did have a friend, Ben, who happened to work at an ice cream shop growing up and we went to college together and he could make baseball bat size ice cream cones. And we always felt pretty cool about those. Oh yeah. Love, I hit the soft serve ice cream machine every single time, but that's part of the reason college is getting expensive is because they're making all these nice things. Can I buy the 1995 college? Like with the crappy dorms without air conditioning, without you know, Wi-Fi, like we just had a telephone and a dial up in our room. Can I, can I get that deal? The crappy dorms, the college that costs 12 grand in state for U of M, including room and board. Is it possible? Well, it's interesting because you, you mentioned University of Michigan, and I just happened to look that up. Right now, if you want to attend with room and board, you're looking at about $30,000 a year. If you go down to more of a Mac school, Western Michigan was charging about 24000 a year with room and board. It's kind of, as we've been saying, sort of interesting to figure out what is the value that these universities are going to provide from people. University of Michigan definitely has a brand name to it that people would get pretty excited about. Western is a fine school, but at the same time, you wonder at that rate that they're charging, do they have enough cachet to sort of help people maybe get into a job interview? Because ultimately, that's what this is all about is being able to say you went to a certain club, graduating from that club, and then hopefully the alumni network is, is open and big enough or people get excited about the kind of stamp ticket that you can present. And as you were saying about U.S. World Report, What's interesting about these colleges is they also get ranked on how many people do they decline. Harvard, these other Ivy League schools, even your University of Michigan, these very elite schools, you know, they might only take 5 10% of their applications. All those other people get rejected. And you might say, well, hey, they didn't make the criteria. But those are all people that want to get educated, right? They want to get a ticket so that they can get ahead in life. And yet these are these very hard to get into places and they charge a lot of money. And it just kind of seems like, well, why shouldn't, shouldn't Harvard take more pride in saying we should, we're going to teach everybody or, hey, we're only going to take the 5% on campus, but we're going to have this online program where we're going to take everybody and give them a Harvard degree. Why is that such a bad idea? I'm with you. And by the way, Stanford stopped publishing how many people they turned down because they're turning down 96% of people. But if you do get into Stanford, and by the way, I hate Stanford because they have a stupid tree mascot. They're the Cardinals. They have a tree mascot. It's dumb. And they cheated in track and field when I was there. So I don't like Stanford. Jim Harbaugh did have success there. Oh, yeah. Well, he had success everywhere until he got to Michigan. But there's a big article about Stanford in The New Yorker years ago. You probably read it. And if you go to Stanford, you get your uh, venture capital money, you start with your idea, your app or whatever, and you become a millionaire or a billionaire. You roll right in. You have to go to Stanford if you get in. If my kid's going to Stanford, I'm going to be like, you got to go, even though I hate them. Here's my big idea. My big idea is quintuple the enrollment, have five times more students. As you walk through the college buildings, the classroom buildings, the lecture halls, are they mostly full or mostly empty? Mostly empty. Always mostly empty. You walk through a high school, and a high school, every room's got a teacher in it. Every room's got students in it. They are all moving all the time, educating all the time. Colleges are empty 90% of the time. And then when you add night and evenings, couldn't we have five times as many students in each school? And by the way, maybe one-fifth as many schools. And then we could do this as an economy of scale. It might be perceived just to go to Michigan and live in the dorms, but that's only available to the first one out of five people. And then say like, well, you got in, but you don't get to live in the dorms. Would you still want to go? Yeah. I think, you, I think you would. I totally think you would. At a discount rate. I mean, why is nobody offering a deal in education? 
Why isn't anybody saying like, hey, Oakland University charges as much as Michigan State? It's not that it's a good deal. It's just they live at home. Where's the deal here? I can't find anybody that's actually competing on price. That's what I keep waiting for is when are we going to see a Michigan State, a Western, say, you know what, folks, we are now offering the full Western or Michigan State degree, and it's going to be online. It's going to be 50% cheaper. At the end of the day, you're going to have the same degree as somebody who went on campus. I feel like there's a real business opportunity for any university that does that. And it could be, you know, somebody doesn't have to be Michigan State or Western. It could be Michigan, for instance. It's ridiculous to me that it is so much cheaper to teach an online student. You can scale those classes up in mass. And yet nobody wants to do that. And I guess maybe they're thinking about their brand or somehow cheapening themselves. I just wonder at some point, whoever does that could have a real market opportunity. Because the other thing I wanted to ask you is, for the last 10 years or 20 years, we've seen the rise of maybe the University of Phoenix or some of these other all online classes or, or universities, but they don't seem to have the cachet. Most people still might seem to kind of slightly giggle at them or people, again, kind of have that elitism from colleges and they kind of look down of, oh, you went to an all online school. I can't believe that. When in fact, a lot of people go to these major universities and take just their online programs and they pay more. And why is it that we won't allow ourselves to kind of have new ways to educate people? Well, I think Arizona State is doing that because Starbucks is offering free tuition to workers if they go to Arizona State online. And it's still ASU, it's just online classes. But it gives you an idea of, I don't think they've seen a groundswell of people going there. It gives you an idea of what people want from college. And it's not online classes. And it might not even be in-person college. I think they want exactly what Brian Kaplan would expect. They'd want the experience to be there. They'd want the fun, the partying, the meeting new people, and the degree which they can use to get themselves a job, give themselves status, give their parents status, which I'm thinking more and more about. That, that is the real reason people want to get into these great colleges. That's a good point. We saw Aunt Becky there from Full House. She uh, cheated her way to get her kids into USC, I think. And University of Spoiled Children. It kind of seemed like a total vanity play for that family. Here's already a very rich family that probably never needs to worry about money again. And probably there were a load of schools that their kids could have probably gotten into, but obviously USC has a nice brand name. And therefore that seemed to be something that was really important for the family at whatever cost it was gonna, it was gonna cost them, right? And now they might be doing some jail time for it. It seems to be all about status. I was talking to another parent at our private pool yesterday, cause I'm very wealthy, although not a billionaire yet. And it's <laughs> the same thing came up. It's about status and claiming who went there and where and it's just a big deal, I think, to the parents more than anything else. But to the kids, they're always competing for who's going to go where and how much reputation does that give you? It's just amazing because, like, at the end of the day, I guess it's, it is a way to, for a feather in a parent's cap to say, my kid got into Michigan or got into an Ivy League school. But it's not like those parents are probably going to be hanging out with those same parents five years later, still bragging about these things. You know, some of these kids will go work on Wall Street and go on their way to make millions. Others of these kids might go do social work and try to help other people. And it's not like there's a ton of that sort of bragging going on, is there? Reminds me of the idea, somebody told me once that your wedding is a really nice celebration for all your friends that you used to have, because you're not going to have those friends anymore. 
And that was certainly true of me. I got married one year out of college and it was mostly college friends and high school friends. And for the most part, we've lived in different geographic areas. We're still in touch with those people. We don't hang about the, hang out with them a lot. And so it's people that you used to be. Well, then why have a big fancy wedding? Who are you impressing? It's the same thing with uh, colleges. Like who are you impressing when you go leave high school and you go to this college and people say, oh, wow, they went to wherever. It's not the right people. I was thinking about just the college model, especially at large universities, at a smaller college, they kind of almost advertise themselves as the anti-university. If you're paying all this money to go to a university, you end up basically going and you've got major researchers that, as you mentioned, are bringing in major research dollars and therefore they might not even teach. You then have adjuncts that do a ton of teaching and those aren't even full-time employees of the university. A lot of the times it's teacher assistant or graduate students that actually do a load of the teaching and all of that is going on for these undergraduates that are paying a ton of money in fact a lot of times subsidizing a lot of the program funds that these departments are running on but yet it's not like they're getting the world's most brilliant people to be up there talking with them or sitting with them in a small group so that they can hash out ideas they always show that on the pamphlet of some wise sage underneath a tree with their students but yet it doesn't really seem to happen a lot. A lot of people sit in classes of a, of a couple hundred people and they take auto-graded tests or quizzes and that's kind of the experience. Well, and who's to say that these brilliant people are good at articulating ideas and conveying information to other students? I think we've both met somebody that's over the moon brilliant that can't convey any information to other people or can't teach them. They're just really good at their thing. And so the idea that you're gonna soak this up instantly, it's kind of far-fetched. People doing the cutting edge research, yeah, they're there, but they're with grad students or a few grad students there, or they're with a rare group of undergraduates. It's not like you're really picking up that much from them. What you're picking up is a degree which says that Amazon should want you because you graduated from Yale or Princeton or wherever. I'm almost amazed though that like a University of Michigan or these large schools wouldn't take their best researchers, go hire some Hollywood producers, and then say, we want to make the greatest lecture series ever that's going to be edited and it's going to be you speaking in this highly produced sort of series of videos. And that's just going to be Econ 101 or History 101 or whatever college classes you have is we do have brilliant people and we don't want you just to kind of get up and just sort of talk in front of a screen in a monotone, but instead like we're going to have Jerry Bruckheimer bringing in explosions and we're going to have these amazing 3D models that are just coming alive to you with VR goggles. Don't you think that would actually maybe make the cost worthwhile? We've tried this. We've tried massive online classes, which people thought would change the world and didn't because nobody really finished them. There's the great courses. I've heard that advertised on podcasts. Maybe we should hook their advertising right now, but I don't see people running to that. You can learn to write from Malcolm Gladwell. He's a good writer. He's very popular. I don't think you see people lining up for that. People want an in-person experience. They want to talk to other people and be there. Or more importantly, just be there and more importantly, be in the dorms, be at the parties, be hanging out with different people that are fun and interesting. It's not something that seems to have a lot of traction, yet that's what college is right now. Well, as we're seeing right now with public schools that you and I teach at, a lot of people are probably most frustrated with schools being closed because of the daycare that they provide, especially at that sort of K through eight 
age level where kids do need some supervision. And I think a lot of parents feel like they just can't fully get back to work or fully get their lives back together until their kids are actually leaving the house. And you could say the college level, well, hey, they're adults, but let's face it, you and I have mentioned often, the ages of 18 to 22 is a very young, most of the time, very immature adult. And you could say the one thing that colleges do is sort of give them a quote unquote safe holding tank to kind of have like summer camp, right? Run around, have some activities. And every <laughs> once in a while, go sit in class. And at the end, you get, uh, you know, a little stamp that says that you spent four years here and now you're ready for the work world. And in some ways, there is a lot of growing up that goes on there. And colleges do sort of provide that. You're 18. Most places probably don't want to actually hire you yet. But what do we do with you, right? You don't want to be at your parents' house anymore. Your parents probably don't want you in the house anymore. And college does seem to fill that void. And as we've seen, people continue to send their kids there. I mean, for the last 10 years, I've sat with other adults and we've all talked about the college cause bubble, right? Someday it's going to pop. It just has to pop. It just has to pop. And yet all we see is the cost rising. And so I do wonder if college really is providing the service that people really do want. I like the summer camp analogy. It is summer camp. You're sort of protected, not really. They're running around. They can raise some havoc, but not hopefully get into too much trouble. But yet they're still, we can all say we're earning money and getting better career skills because you theoretically are, even though the skills are for the most part, just a piece of paper. It seems to be that. But how much can we possibly pay for college summer camp? I mean, if you're a family that makes hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, then sure, absolutely. Summer camp sounds great for your college student. But yeah, isn't there a breaking point? I was briefly interested in uh, becoming a pilot, and I looked into that. And flight school, becoming a commercial pilot, costs about as much as going to college. So why don't you just become a commercial pilot and you can fly people places? I mean, that's something you could do instead. Yeah, the airlines, unfortunately, are laying everybody off right now. Yeah, but, yeah, but theoretically, maybe someday. And that autopilot, I think, is making the job not as uh, as, <laughs> as, as, as it once did. You do bring up a good point, and you and I have talked often about that in, on this podcast, about just market-based solutions. And a part of me really does wonder if, is this really the first moment where some universities are really going to have to re-examine their cost and business model because they're just not having the numbers. My friend who works at a community college in the IT department, he said they budgeted for a 15% decline in enrollment and they only had 9%, so they were pretty excited about that. But this is a community college. Usually community colleges are, are a first step for a lot of people in terms of seeking degree, seeking higher education. And I gotta assume if they're down 9%, it really makes me wonder what some of your other mid-tier schools are at this year. And do they have to finally wake up and say, you know what, we've got to try to lower the price and increase the volume. Can we keep doing this? We're already seeing it like in their athletic departments where they're having to cut programs because they just can't afford them. I just wonder how, how long can they keep going like this before the cash flow really dries up and a new idea has to happen? I'm with you. I, I'm surprised community college is down at all. I think they might be up nationwide. I know more than one kid that has said, no, I'm not going to pay for Michigan State or wherever, and I'm going to instead go to community college because it's about the same for the introductory classes, and the cost is way, way less, which makes total sense to me. It's a good way to deal with this current situation. Your other question is more interesting. When you think about marginal revenue, so if you're getting, let's just say, 30 grand per kid, and you already have 20,000 students enrolled, 
and then you offer a lower price for the new students to attract more students. You have to lower the price for the other people that are already there, right? Yeah. So what happens to your marginal revenue? The additional student could actually give you less revenue because you have to lower the price for all the previously pending students. So then you'd have to really bank on having a lot more students. It'd be a little bit of a dangerous play. I mean, how do you get more kids is really a challenge for many small schools. I know some of them are adding football programs because there you can pick up 100 kids and all you have to do is pay for coaches and buy some pads. But I mean, lowering the price for everybody is really kind of a gamble. Right. In, in AP microeconomics, we talk about elasticities, right? In that total revenue test, whereas you lower the price of something, all of a sudden more people are interested in buying it. And I just wonder, given if you are a fully online platform, where you could probably double and triple your capacity. Now, obviously I don't work in IT, so therefore somebody might be listening and saying, no, like, it's not that easy. But a part of me just says, you can keep adding accounts relatively cheaply if you've got TAs who are already doing your face-to-face -face grading anyways, why aren't they the ones that then are assigned to these large classes and it seems like the model could work. And I, I definitely could be missing something. But hey, you want to get educated? Like, here's a very affordable way. That makes total sense. But you're talking about online. And that doesn't seem to be that popular. I'm talking in person. Just send more people to that campus. Sure, double, triple, quadruple the number of people going there. And put, tell the professors, instead of teaching one out, three hours a week, you're teaching nine. And we'll pay you more. Or we'll pay you the same. Where are they going to go? It's like us teachers. You and I are in the classroom in front of students for, before this COVID thing, for what, six hours a day? We're in front of a child talking to them and to a group of children. They come and go. Why can't college professors do three hours a day, way less than we do, and roll through that? That's a good point. And I guess it's interesting because I've never actually thought about the model changing in terms of more people physically going to campus. But you make a good point. I almost wonder, though, if, if you're a university, do you say, look, our on-campus experience is the premium experience. We're actually going to yeah. double down or triple down on the cost of that. But we're going to really cut down on the cost of the online experience. And therefore, people could still have their choice. You could just say it will make colleges even that much more elite and that much more harder for a lot of people <laughs> to obtain. So that doesn't seem very fair as I'm, as I'm talking about that but at least maybe it's a way to make it more accessible and affordable for people. Here's the way I see that working. You're doing your own classes, but you still live in the dorm. Yeah. Because that's what the kids want. They want to live in the dorm. They want to meet people. They want to hang out. They don't want to go to class. And if you just have the online classes, but you still have the dorm, you just have this giant residential facility and party center, then sure, why not? Now that's interesting. So what you're saying is the college campus should tear down every lecture hall and, and department building and just build more dorms and then just have one production studio that they're running all their classes out of and stuff like that. I'm not saying tear everything down because it still has to look like college. If it looks like college, if it Gotta feels like college, idea. if it smells like college, it's college, regardless of whether or not people are actually in those lecture halls. It's just about they're here, they feel like they're in college, they're living in the dorm, they're wearing the name of the university on their shirt, and they are living the dream. They're just taking their classes online. One of the things that always gets my dad fired up, you walk around a campus like University of Michigan or any, any major campus, and you always see cranes in a building project. There's always a new building 
going up. And they're always these, you know, hundred million dollar buildings. Oh, they're building a new business school or they're building a new law school or they're building this. And all I can ever think is that's a lot of money that usually a very rich, successful alumni paid for. But yet all of that money could have gone to offset tuition for the year, right? We see these large universities like University of Michigan with billion dollar endowments. They all claim, oh, no, no, we need this to help offset the operating budget. This is really important. And now this year we're going to go out and harass our alumni to keep giving more money to this endowment. I've always wondered, don't you think there should be the first rule is you need to spend your endowment down to zero and then you can start telling me about why your tuition has to continue to increase? I'm thinking of the Charlie Munger building for graduate student housing right across the street from West Quad in Ann Arbor. And Charlie Munger gave the money and also designed the dorm because he wouldn't give the money unless he could design the dorm because he likes architecture. No, uh, I think you're bringing up an interesting point. You, we'd be remiss if we did not bring up Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, because he went deep into this for like three episodes. And he talked about why are one university putting on really nice cafeterias and really nice food, and another university is putting all their money into scholarships, but yet the one with the nice food is becoming more prestigious because they're getting the better students because people want to go and get the nice food food. So that's why they go to college there. They can recruit better students. Whereas this one giving more aid doesn't help. And in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, they went into an article about how the admission systems works at elite colleges. And many of them say, we want the best students, but we're going to have to look at the costs of enrolling these students in terms of how much aid we're going to have to give them before we actually make a decision. And almost all colleges do that. So they have to make money or so in their mind, they're going to do so. So yeah, the endowment's gigantic. And that's what they want is they want an endowment. You can endow a scholarship for around $300,000 for one scholarship, but they don't want to give all that money away right now. They just want to build this reputation, build the institution so it can go on and on. Presidents are judged by what happens with the endowment and the enrollment and the ranking. And ultimately, that's how they make their decisions, it seems. Because you listen to them, they're like, oh, with this endowment money, we will give out a scholarship. Or our goal is someday to make all of our students not have to pay a dime to go here. And they have all these sort of crazy socialist ideals about what they want to make their university be about. If only we could just raise more money so that someday we can do all of these amazing things. But I would also just say that your current crop of freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors are still paying an increasing amount of tuition every year. Why not just liquidate it and say, you know what? We care today about the current students that we have. We're giving them all a break. And now that we've spent our endowment down, maybe one, you're at least more of an honest broker when you go to the state and complain about how you're not getting enough state funding for your tuition. But at the same time, you're also showing, look, we're doing it. We're actually living the dream that we say that we're trying to live. Yeah, I mean, you could do that, but it's not going to make the reputation. Episodes five and six of season one of Revisionist History, it's about Bowdoin College and Vassar College and how they compete for the same students, but one has a better cafeteria. And that's how it works. And then the next episode is about donating to the colleges and how that, how that works. And it talks about Hank Rowan and his My Little 100 Million is the name of the episode because he has $100 million. He can give it to anywhere. He gives it to a small state school to build an engineering facility and an engineering program. He could have given it to Stanford or Harvard or got his name on the side of a cafeteria or a dorm. But no, he gave it to a small college. He wanted to make a difference. 
And in this episode, Gladwell says to the head of Stanford, what if I gave you a billion dollars? What could you do with a billion dollars or 10 billion? He said, wow, that would be very generous. It took him like three seconds to say, I can think of a life science building that we could build for $10 billion and we can endow a hundred scholarships forever. And we could have this nice facility and building. It's just about building an ongoing reputation and building this college's esteem. That's how they are judged. I'm with you. If I make billions of dollars, I want the money given away now. Give it all away to kids now. But it's just not the way they think. That's true. And they are in charge of shepherding the reputation and the existence of these universities long after they're gone. And you make a good point. They're always thinking about that. When you said the life science building, I just thought, but you probably have a life science building that was probably built maybe 15 years ago. It's probably doing world-class research already. Do you really need one with even more glass, right? Even more uh, natural light getting in there and stuff like that. Yes, because they're trying to pull the professors from the better places. It's about recruiting professors to tell them they'll come here and they'll have a really big, nice lab. And that's why you should come here from Harvard and you'll have 10 scholarships or whatever. And so they're trying to get the best best professors. So then the students will come to be with the professors. So then you get the best students. So then your ranking rise. It's all in a circle. The tail is wagging the dog. And none of it is actually talking about outcomes, results, learning goals for the current crop of students. And I think that's what's so interesting is it's almost like there's just two very different goals, right? A student's goal is to get a degree. The university or the institution's goal seems to grow and increase revenue. Are they really that interested in whether or not their students are graduating, right? In this article, they they bring up the fact that only 60% of college kids actually finish and earn a college degree within six years. That's terrible, in my opinion, for the amount of money that people are doing it. Do you think colleges should have to figure out a better way to, to retain students or to get students through? I mean, even if that means lower the bar, right? We talked about our standards too high or too low in a podcast earlier. And is it possible that they're just still too high, right? Isn't the goal just to get people that ticket so they can get out into life and then go find a job and prove that they have the ticket that people want to see, even though they're not really going to ask them if they learn anything? Barack Obama went after colleges like Trump University that just created degree factories that didn't that took more than most of the money. Very rarely did kids graduate, and they went after them pretty hardcore and tried to do some accountability. But ultimately, there's little accountability. And the schools that have the highest graduation rates are the schools with the students coming in with the highest test scores. Well, you know what the number one thing is that correlated with with test scores, right? What's that? Parents' Wealth. income. Income. Yeah. So if the parents are wealthy, the kids get test better because the parents provide the tutors and the better college, better high schools. And then they go to the good college and they finish because their parents have the money. It's not like there's the most, many of them are not working a second job, trying to get by the colleges that may have the lowest graduation rates may actually be doing the best jobs because they're reaching out to the students that have the most desire, but the least resources. So in a sense, it'd be hard to grade colleges based on their graduation rates. The article mentions the idea of Google starting to offer maybe some competency certifications. You and I have often talked about how trade school in our country always seems very maligned and and people don't seem to respect the idea that people go out and learn how to become an electrician or a plumber, which 
make more than I do in a year. And yet there just seems to be something about, no, you need that four-year degree, even if it's that you became a poetry major. Why is it that our society seems to struggle with the idea of having alternative ways for people to show that they have a skill that could be very valued in society? I know a ton of people that went to college and majored in something and do nothing related to that thing. I have a friend that went to social studies education, didn't get a teaching certificate, but now does internet advertising and makes way more money than I do. But because he came out of college, then he had the requisite skills in that they had a college degree to then get this job or work his way through this or did it because of the people they developed and met in college. So yeah, it's seen as just a gold mine, even if it's not about anything you learned. Now that said, trade schools are a good option. I like the idea. I like fixing things. I like making things. But at the same time, I think the idea of being 40 and being a plumber and still dealing with crappy toilets and sewage pipes is just the miserable thing that people don't want. They want the idea that they can have this degree which leads them to the higher up. And you and I are in a weird spot because our contemporaries, the people that we knew growing up are now important and now have 50, 100 people working below them. They make lots of money, but more importantly, they're doing interesting things because they started with this college education, even if it had little or nothing to do with what they do now. No, that's a good point. But at the same time, I just always think we don't seem to have a very just realistic conversation about the idea that there are lots of jobs in our nation that need to get done that pay a very good wage that a lot of people can do. And I don't think we do a very good job shedding light on those kinds of jobs. Um, and for some reason, we, we seem to put a stigma on them that I don't think is very necessary. And if anything, I think it hurts people from going into certain careers like that. And we do have shortages of those jobs. Heating and air conditioning repair, the people that do plumbing and woodworking and electrical, there's not enough of them. Partly because we've been pissing on their reputation for years and years and people don't want to go into it. But it is an important skill and it's a good job. I would like to say I don't have a problem with my kids going into it. But at the same time, my mind is so ingrained with this luxurious experience where you spend four or five years kind of matriculating and maybe not learning anything, but at least being in this enriched environment to become more mature. Well, and ironically though, you go to trade school and you actually have to demonstrate a competency when you're done and you've got to actually show what you can do, right? You got to wire a house, you've got to fix leaky pipes, you got to go build something, you have to get a license, you got to go take a test. Ultimately to get through a four year college, there's definitely some grit that needs to happen. You got to apply yourself a little bit, but I would argue trade school actually seems to be a place that can actually prove that it teaches something and that its students learn something. Well, when you finish your PhD, you have to defend your thesis and you have to stand in front of the professors and answer the questions. And I remember talking to my sister-in-law who did a uh, hard genetics degree at Harvard and talk about the defense and just how she went through it and she prepared for it. And I was like, wow, that sounds intense. Thank God they didn't have that for undergrad, because I'm not sure what I'd be defending, because I didn't learn a tremendous amount in my undergrad, which was entirely my fault. But it's just not done. Should it be done? As you said, college is wasted on the young. <laughs> I've got two final questions here for you. 10 to 20 years from now, here we are complaining about colleges, talking about the cost, if there's any value there. People have been having this conversation forever. I get it. This is not a totally unique topic. 
Do you think 10 to 20 years from now, colleges look at all different? Personally, I think they don't. I think they might just become more elite, harder to get into, working even harder to make your U.S. and news report list. But what do you think? Do you think there could be a change? If COVID doesn't go away and there is no vaccine in sight, and this goes two years, three years, and it's online education for extremely high prices, yeah, I think things change. I don't think that will happen. But I think that could be the change. Beyond that, there's so much ingrained in the system and how the assumptions work. It is one that is just going to stay around, I think. I mean, I'm saving like crazy for my two kids with the full assumption that they'll go. I don't necessarily think I'd require them to go, but it's just the system. That's where you're supposed to do after high school, right? In some ways, for people of privilege like you and I, yeah, like, my parents talked about college from the very beginning when I was growing up, and it was sort of never in doubt that I was going to go to college, and therefore I went to college. And just like you, I, my wife and I have been saving for our kids to go to college, and we start talking about the idea of what college you want to go to, or hey, let's go walk around mom and dad's old college they went to, right? So it's, it's already slowly building in their vocabulary, and I would assume my kids will eventually just sort of say that's what I'm supposed to do. But I also just sometimes wonder if it's not a very original thing anymore. I'm kind of, I kind of admire these kids that take these gap years or people that just sort of take a little different path. And maybe eventually they come back around to college, but maybe they come back around to it when they're actually ready. As you said, man, if I'd only gone to college when I was 28 or maybe now that I'm 39, man, the things I think I would learn. Oh, we'd take full advantage because you're intellectually curious. Also, if you were married when you went to college, it would give you a lot more focus in what you really want to do because you've had some other things resolved. I mean, I was a moron. And yes, that could work. Although the gap year seems like the most luxurious, unbelievably privileged thing to do. Yes, if you're one of the Obama daughters, go for it. You are from an intellectual family that is incredibly well connected. You're not going to really be hurt by this, but it seems like the most luxurious things in the world. Unless maybe you go to uh, Tahiti and somehow found some school or do something, or maybe that's the way to go. But it's hard to get legitimacy without the college degree. Maybe you should just lie and say you went to college. Can't argue with any of that. I guess you're right. The, the gap year does seem a little bit, or I guess it depends on what it is you're doing. Now, I mean, because some people literally just go and they say, I got to work. I got to save money so that I can go to college a little bit later. I always have a lot of respect for that. You and I have a very good friend who I remember once told me, I didn't have the kind of college experience that you two are always talking about in the office. I lived at home. My parents gave me free room and board. And then I tried to pile all my classes on like two days a week so that I could lay brick the other three days a week so that I could hopefully get out of there with no debt. He's like, every day I laid brick, it was a reminder of why I was going to college. And that really kind of sobered me up when he talked about that. And just thinking, you're right, you and I really had privileged backgrounds to be able to just kind of go and, and quote unquote, go to camp for four years. You're absolutely right. It's a truly luxurious experience. And he valued what he learned more because of what he way thought about it. And I, we have another friend that did that too, that had three jobs and lived at home and worked their way through college. It's a different experience. And maybe not one where they get to have the just maturing, fun, silliness, but I still want that for my kids. I still want them to have that fun, silly, stupid, luxurious experience because I really enjoyed it. It's that cognitive dissonance, right? Oh. I know they're going to college. I know they're not learning anything in the classroom, but I know they're learning <clears throat> something else. 
That's right. And I'm, I'm happy for them. I just want them to be happy. And I don't really care. I, I mean, it'd be nice if they went to Michigan, like my wife and I, but I'd be happy if they went to another school. I just want them to be somewhere where they're interested, engaged, and part of a community. That's a good experience. By the way, another totally. interesting group of people are the people that go to military before college because they have a different experience too because they're a little bit of an adult already when they get there and they have many more experiences than those that come straight from high school at 18. No, that's a really good point. I've got a friend who's got a son uh, who's in the ROTC program at Central Michigan and he's sort of been doing school some years and then other years he goes and does a tour of duty and I just think what an amazing experience that is to kind of mix and match it all together. And I just always think too, like when I was 22 and kind of graduating, I didn't really know a whole lot about like what I really wanted to do, right? Because now you're done with college and camp's over and I got to figure that out. And I realized how few little real world experience I'd been having. I'd been living in this little bubble, learning about very interesting ideas, but I really hadn't had any major internships or any real practical experiences. And it does seem like those could be a lot more a part of maybe what college is about. Yeah. And I think they have made some changes. I student taught for six weeks of which I was actually teaching for two full weeks. And then I left and started teaching a, a real teaching job. I was totally unprepared. I mean, maybe they do a better job now. I hear they do lots of more with uh, educators, although there's fewer teachers coming out of the great state of Michigan every year. I'd like to think that they do a better job preparing people. I'm not sure they really do. I'm not sure, I guess, how you judge that. I'm sure you could probably say, well, our graduates make this, or this is how many get a job outside of six months when they graduate from here. And I'm not sure how they collect all those statistics. There is something about how do you measure educational gains, and maybe that's something that we'll continue to see. I'm sure that this conversation is going to continue nationally, and I'm sure that there are going to be more and more pressure points on universities to come up with some sort of way to justify their cost. It's really going to fall on the mid-tier ones because the upper ones can say, all right, you don't want to come? That's fine. We can fill your ranks with another person that's very similar in accomplishments and status that will still make us look good in U.S. News and World Report. If you're a mid-tier school, though, you can quickly see this as a slippery slope and be falling down. Many colleges have closed already. More are going to close. These small schools, they don't have the endowments, and they can quickly see the sand slipping beneath their feet. No, and that will be interesting, too, with the virus and with how America sort of made it more and more difficult for foreigners to come in our nation. There's a lot of international students, especially from China, that help foot a lot of the cost for these universities. And if they can't enroll, that just seems like it'd make it even a bigger financial hole for these universities to fill. Yeah, and many of them are paying full, full tuition, as opposed to more in-state students that are paying not full tuition. Final question. So we've talked a lot about just colleges. Are they worth it? Are they worth the cost? And a lot of times the most expensive employee on the college campus is the football coach like Jim Harbaugh or sometimes the basketball coach if it's more of a basketball oriented school. Does that matter? Does it, should we just say, eh, who cares? Or does that say something about universities when they pay an athletic coach the most? Marginal revenue product should equal marginal resource costs. It's a law of microeconomics. You should keep hiring people until MRC equals MRP. I remember vividly Jim Calhoun, the University of Connecticut president, when the economic collapse hit in 2008 and the state of, New of Connecticut was going down, the university was making cuts, and somebody asked him about that at a press conference because he made millions. And he tore the reporter up one side and down the other. 
Do you know how much money I bring into the years for university? Do you know how I know how much? And I could have argued that it's the players, but he's the one, the head of the program that's making sure this whole thing goes down and that people come to the seats and come to the games. So I could see that, although we're not really playing, paying the players, but it's the coach that's making this program what it is year after year. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's a good point. Millions of people tune in to watch Jim Harbaugh coach football. No one's tuning in to watch astronomy 101 on the Ann Arbor campus. And therefore, look, he's clearly bringing in people driving interest and that's what gets the donors going and kind of feeds the beast. And that's a really good point. He's probably maybe even worth more than he gets paid. Yeah, your boy Nick Saban, he's just bringing in money into Alabama. That school's getting better academically because they have so much money in football and so much reputation in football, they get more applicants and they can pull better applicants out of it. So they're ranking in the U.S. News and World Report. One could argue that Nick Saban's done more for the academic performance of the University of Alabama than anybody else. And so, yeah, I guess he's worth it. It makes kind of a weird sense, but it does. So really, the business model should be that the University of Michigan should start a second football team and hire another big-name coach and then uh, just make even more money that way, right? Even Maybe even cancel all undergraduate classes. I'm sticking with my idea. Bigger dorms, less classes in person, more classes online. Kids don't want to get out of bed and go to class anyway, but still you got the community. It looks like a college town, smells like a college town. More students would just mean more demand for breweries and uh, medicinal marijuana places and places to sell tie-dyed shirts. It would still be a college town. It would just be more people. You just don't need to have any more classrooms. It would be like Woodstock every day. Well, Don, it's been, it's been very interesting. Luckily, I've still got 10 more years or so to save for my kids' education. And uh, it will be very interesting to see if this dam ever breaks. I am five years looking out towards college, four years, and then we're going to be doing the college tour. It's, it's coming closer and closer. Something's happening. I'm here. I'm getting older. It's sad. Time keeps marching. That's for sure. Great to talk with you, Don. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.